the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Allison Sesso, Executive Director of the Human Services Council, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. In New York City, the voice of the human service community is quite simply the Human Services Council. They help lead the sector on issues of the greatest importance. And no matter what the economic climate or who is in office, this is challenging work. And here to discuss it with us is Allison Sesso, the Executive Director of the Human Services Council. Good evening, Allison, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you so much for having me. So what kind of services are we talking about here, Allison? Oh, it's everything that that supports well-being for New Yorkers. It's from child care to mental health services, substance abuse, after school, senior care, uh, disaster help after a disaster happens, like Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. So it's everything that supports the human needs of, of New Yorkers. Yeah, and about how many organizations are, are part of the council? So there's about 170 in our membership, mm-hmm. which collectively provide about 90% of the services in, in the city. Walk us through the process of how government goes about providing human services to, to communities. Well, government doesn't really directly provide services Mm -hmm. to communities. It is my members that do that work uh, through a contracting process with the government. Um, The government puts out what's called a request for proposals. The nonprofits review the request for proposals, and they bid on those contracts, and then they get paid or underpaid, I should say, for for the provision of services um, to New Yorkers that are are in their communities. And in aggregate, how large are those contracts put together? Uh, there are about $6 billion that the the city spends on those services. Yeah, it's pretty significant, which I think a lot of people don't recognize just how much of an industry it is. What is the current state of the human services sector in New York? Not great, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Uh, as I, as I describe it, the, the, the institutions themselves are mirroring their clients Mm. in that they are financially, uh, Strapped, uh, they you know live payroll to payroll, just like the the individuals that they serve live paycheck to paycheck, and one event can really undermine them. and And we've seen nonprofits go under. Twenty um, percent are actually of human service organizations are insolvent, um, and I would say another forty to fifty percent uh, really don't have uh, reserves of more than three months oh, on, wow, on the goodness. books. And so it's they are in a very cash strapped. Uh, situation, and it's because of the way government contracts with them, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a pretty good economic climate. I mm-hmm. think about 4.2% unemployment here in New York City. On the other hand, we know the great divisions that are going on and how many people are being left behind. What would you say about the demand on these agencies right now? Is it about the same as it's always been, more or less? I would def- definitely say it's more significant. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no question that money, money is being funneled up to the more wealthy. I mean, there's lots of you know, evidence of that. And so it is being, it's harder and harder to make it, which means that people rely more 
and more on these services. And government, I think, you know, in New York City really wants to buy more of these services. And I think that that's great, and that's a great trend, but they need to pay for the full cost of it. Well, let's speak a little bit about that. You're saying that these agencies, when they contract for these services, are underfunded by the government. How large is that, and why is that happening? Yeah, so, you know, on average, they only pay 80 cents of the actual cost of the services. Um why it happens, I mean, nonprofits are community-based institutions. They have missions, and, and there's no one else that's really going to bring their services to scale. And so when they see a government contract, they evaluate it, and they determine whether or not they can afford to take that contract. And essentially, they have to fundraise privately to in order to take that contract. Oh, that's difficult. Yes. And so they have to throw parties. They have to you know, have boards that have a lot of money that can make contributions. They have to go to private philanthropy. Uh, go to banks, you know, go to different places to try to raise the money to, in order to take that government contract and do that work in the community. And so um, that, unfortunately, makes it a very difficult operational uh, challenge for m- many of the nonprofits operating in the city. Are, is the government failing to pay the cost for the program? Is that part of it? Or are they failing to pay all the indirect costs and Both. the overhead that are part <laughs> of it? So it's a co- combination Both, yeah. of the two. Mm-hmm. So, so um, the government pays... About again, about eighty cents of the actual cost. The program funds are not sufficient, um, and at the same time, government has traditionally not recognized the indirect costs and the importance of that. And indirect costs really pay for the institution to exist. It, it pays for for research. It pays for the HR department. It pays for management. You know, it pays to make sure that the nonprofit is operating efficiently. Um, and but I will say, and I give a lot of credit to the de Blasio administration and the Speaker of uh, Corey Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last budget that was uh, agreed to in June, they and you know this has a lot to do with our advocacy. They did finally agree that they are going to pay the indirect rates and what they really are for individual institutions in the city of New York. And so that is a huge step forward. Um, We do not have that same commitment from the state. I would say Governor Cuomo has largely ignored this sector in terms of his investment in it. We've and and that there needs to be that same change that we've seen uh, at the city level happen at the state level. Yeah, congratulations! That is real huge. It's game changing. Yeah. You know, speaking about this eighty percent rate, when the city contracts with a business. Do uh-huh. they pay that same 80% rate or do they pay the full freight? No, they pay the full freight for the most part. I mean, I think that the the situation is that nonprofits don't really have any other buyers of these services, right? It's really a one market. The the government is the only one that's buying homeless shelters. No mm-hmm. one else is buying them. Um, no one else is really, you know, buying the substance abuse services in the same way. You know, there's only so many private buyers of those kinds of, of services. So um, I think that that's part of the problem is that... But it's really a one market um, buyer. And so the nonprofits, if they want to do services to scale, again, we're talking, like I said earlier, $6 billion the city spends on that. The philanthropic dollars just can't make up that difference um, in terms of scale. Mm -hmm. And I think it probably hurts in in a a way that they're so mission-oriented, that they care so deeply about the people that they're serving. they put their own well-being aside. We'll figure it out later because these people really need our help. Are more of them beginning to stand up and say, no mas? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, And I like to think I had something to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) I have a hunch you did. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, I've been really, through our work at the Human Services Council, we've been pointing out the risks that nonprofits um, take on when when they take on these contracts. And 
we've been trying to get boards of directors to pay more attention and to and to ensure that the nonprofits are thinking about the operational challenges because they are real and to and to say no to contracts that are are not paying the full cost because frankly it's hard to advocate on behalf of institutions that keep raising their hand for contracts that are underpaid right um but i will say that i've seen a number of nonprofits really scale back and think about which contracts they're going to say yes to. They have def. I, I know that there's many that have said turned back contracts and not put their hat in the ring for different RFPs that have come to the street, um, which is not a good sign for government in terms of you know having a lot of people compete for these contracts. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is the argument that you know somebody will pick it up, but like you don't want just somebody to pick up the contract. You want a quality, good yeah. provider mm-hmm. to do the work on behalf of the city, not just somebody who's willing to do it. You know, a corollary of this would be the speed of reimbursements because when yes. a nonprofit goes about and provides the work, provides the services, yeah. Yeah. they probably expect to then go to the mailbox and see a check there. Yeah, it doesn't work that doesn't way. doesn't work that way. What uh, the, how well, does it work? I mean, unfortunately, it's sort of like, let me underpay you and then let me wait nine months to give you that underpayment. So <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Um, so, the yeah, the nonprofits are, are routinely um, paid you know, nine months to a year sometimes late on the on the work, and they have to provide the service. They can't not begin the work because oftentimes they're already doing the work, have the employees. Yeah. And so a lot of these um, requests for proposals are just an, a, you know, continuing that work, right? So you may you have a child care center, your contract's going to end, and then the government puts out a new request for proposals, so you bid for it, hoping that you'll get it, and then you will continue with the employees you already have in place. So if the government takes forever to actually make an uh, officially may say yes to that contract for you the new one and then get it through the process you're continuing to pay those employees and continuing to deliver those services without having the actual money in hand which forces you to go to the bank take out loans and then that increases your costs further because you have to pay interest on that that's right so what's the problem with the city? I mean, why are they taking nine months? Is there a procurement process that's there all is. messed there, up with no timelines? Yeah, or what, what's there, going on? There are no timelines for the. There are no official timelines. Only the comptroller has a thirty day um, deadline to to actually approve contracts. We have there actually is legislation proposed by um, Council Member Helen Rosenthal and by Council Member Ben Kalos that would create timelines, which we're supportive of. Um, and I will again give credit to at the mayor's office of contract services. They are. Com- Coming up with a system that will create transparency mm-hmm. in the process, which I think will help tremendously, but it is not yet implemented. Uh, and so once it's implemented, I expect things to get better, but you know, we'll see. And it's transparency is not the same as a deadline. Yes, that's right. That's right. You, you can see clearly right. that they're nine months late. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know who to blame maybe more readily, right? Yeah. So speak a little bit more about the impact of all this, both the underfunding and the late payments and Mm -hmm. the kind of stress that it puts on the organization, the people who work there, and the people that are being served. Yeah, unfortunately, the nonprofits have been hobbling along in this environment for a long time, and they have had to make very difficult decisions in order to survive. And that comes out, look, their biggest costs are the costs of their employees. Those Mm -hmm. are the people that, you know, you're essentially buying services that are provided by people. So they're a huge employer. 80% of the workforce is women. Mm-hmm. Uh, a huge percentage are, are, are people of color and yeah, women 70, of color. 70, 75%. Is exactly. A tremendous amount. And 
we underpay them. Um, the the health benefits have gone down. The, uh, you will be hard pressed to find anyone that has a pension or any kind of investment in retirement. So I think that's a real problem. That's the you know cans being kicked down the road. Increasingly, these nonprofits are needing themselves social services to make ends meet for their families. Um, and really, I I do think that there's a point in which. Government needs to recognize the impact on the workforce, but also nonprofits need to evaluate their contracts and say, we're not willing to be a poverty employer. Um, So I would point fingers in both directions on this. I do think that there's a point that nonprofits have to say, we are absolutely not willing to to employ people at this level. Um, And what happens is you end up with huge turnover rates, right? I I can imagine. And and the thing is, if you have turnover rates, you you know, we're not making genes at these institutions, right? It's the turnover has real consequences. You're talking about people working in the in the child welfare field just think there's like a 30% turnover rate. Those are people that are foster children, right, who have been separated from their families and people trying to work one on one with those individual kids. Could you imagine if you had you finally get the trust built and then your caseworker leaves and you have to start your story over. It's like re-traumatizing people. It is so counterproductive. It is is disheartening and, and hurtful. And the think, same thing for homeless providers. I mean, there's just too much turnover within the institutions. And another thing that's happening, frankly, is because of the this this these this funding problem, a lot of nonprofits have vacancies for long periods of time, hmm. which means that the workers that have remained are only working that much harder and having, you know, getting more burnt out. And what I'm seeing, frankly, is that a lot of those nonprofits are relying on those vacancies to make their books closed and balanced, oh, which is no. a terrible, terrible trend. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, that population is the worst population to do this to. Yeah. Somebody who has just been – finally have built some trusts and then to have them say, well, here, here we go again. And I will, I will say it's very um, – it's really problematic for me. I look at the, at the governor's level, at Cuomo, and yeah. he has talked so much publicly about the imbalance of you know pay equity for women versus men and how he's doing all this stuff. Yet he controls the salaries of a workforce that's 80 percent women, mm. and he has refused to give a cost of living adjustment, which is like two, three percent increase yeah. on a you know salary of like thirty, forty thousand dollars. Um, he's refused to do it year after year, and actually saved that money for the state. Um, I mean, we've seen a, a $5 billion reduction in in what the state has paid for human services oh, since he's been in office. I yeah. mean, it is insane how he talks publicly on the one hand about this pay disparity between women and, and men and how he's going to do something about it. And yet time after time does not take – do anything about it when he has the opportunity. If he could just address the work, the the cost of living adjustment as a small measure, but he doesn't doesn't take that opportunity. And as you know, Allison, in the workforce these days, people are looking for personal development and personal growth. Correct. So they're not even dealing with these very basic issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that these workers, that is the farthest thing from their mind and their organizations in terms of how do I grow my skills. Right. They're just trying to make it through every single day. Yeah, and they end up going to places like Starbucks, like to, to get other jobs. And that's not where we want, you know, people who are caring want to care for people. We want to support them. You touched on this a moment ago, but I had the CEO of the Open Road Alliance on the program recently. And she mentioned that there is one four-letter word in the nonprofit sector that we never talk about, and that is risk. (laughs) Uh, Speak about risk management uh, among your member organizations, why it is so important, and also why do so many people stick their head in the sand and shy away from it? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel like that has is changing, mm-hmm. um, and I think we had something to do with it. So, 
risk is something that nonprofits absolutely need to pay attention to. Um, the government contracts that they sign up for are extremely risky in a lot of different ways, financially, operationally. Uh, there's just a lot of different levels of you know who, who controls the actual clients coming to you, uh, the intake. There's a lot of different ways in which the, the, the contracts are risky. I absolutely am a big proponent of nonprofits having their eyes wide open to what they're signing up for. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually created a tool called the RFP Raider. Great um, tool. <laughs> yeah, it's a great tool. Um, it's been in place about three years now where we actually take government contracts, we rate them for risks, um, and we put that information out publicly so that the nonprofits can be aware of the risks and that nonprofit boards are aware of the risks and that uh, the government's is basically held accountable to the risks that they're putting on the nonprofits as well. And I will say we've been successful in a couple of the RFPs that we've put we've rated. Government has actually pulled back and made adjustments to the contracts, Good which is you. a huge advocacy tool. Um, and I'm I'm really happy about that. But I would just say every nonprofit should not only be thinking about the risks themselves, but they should be talking about the risks with their boards of directors. Mm. That to me is, and boards of directors need to be asking questions about risk. Yeah. They do not ask the hard questions. They do Board of directors. To. Yep. Uh, I mean, so, they're responsible fiscally for those institutions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think sometimes they they get that sense. And uh, we were just talking the other day about boards and how they never come to an organization as a team. Yeah. They kind of come as an individual who's got a concern. Maybe they'll make a gift. But the idea of having them come together as a team and ask hard questions of the management, yep. um, not in a, in, a, in a belittling way, but to really, really ask those questions for the future success of the organization exactly. and so stability. That, yeah, exactly. It, it, so they can understand what the risks are and what the opportunities are and, and help move the organization forward and onto solid footing. Mm-hmm. I've noticed uh, over the last few years the Human Services Council has become more assertive in advocacy. You've really stepped up those (laughs) efforts. What prompted that decision and what are you advocating for at the moment? I think there's been a real recognition and frustration on on the uh, provider's uh, side of things that we are not getting what we need from government. Um, Mm -hmm. we've, We've seen a lot of nonprofits go down. Um, you know, when one of the largest institutions, FEGS, w- went down almost overnight and went into bankruptcy, I think that really scared a lot of the, the institutions. And they said, well, how did that happen? Because I think before that, there was this sense that if you were small, that could happen. But if you were large, it could not. Happen. And it, that's not the issue. The issue is the margins. And yeah, actually, margins, if you're yeah. really large, mm-hmm. the, the if you're talking about 80 cents on the dollar, the, you're the amount you have to fundraise is even bigger. So you have even more to pay attention to in terms of your private sector funds and how you run your operations. So there has been a real recognition as nonprofit institutions have have been closing, there's been a lot more mergers, um, that that our advocacy needs to to step up if we are to make sure that government is treating us right. And so, you know, I'm happy that we've been leading campaigns to really push for what the sector needs and to importantly connect it back to the outcomes in communities because that's what it's about. It's not about the institutions. Right. You know, who cares? If FEGS existed, somebody else picks up the work. It's not about the institution. That's a great point. It's really about the people. And if we don't have strong institutions doing the work, we do, will not have good outcomes for kids, for seniors, Etc. Too many institutions talk about the institutions and mm-hmm. not enough about the people right. that they're serving, and they would be better served if they did that in the communities. You've also uh, crowdsourced feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the nonprofits, you know, are, are seen as vendors of the government. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so we kind of did this almost like Yelp kind of approach where we asked the nonprofits to rate almost as like customers of government, right? Like what was what is your experience when you work with government? Are you getting paid, you know, do you feel like that they're treating you well when you get paid, when you have questions about your payments or where your where your contract is in this, you know, crazy process or um, if you want to come back to the table and negotiate an element of your contract? Like do you feel like they're working with you more as a partner or are they treating you more like a vendor? And so we give government grades. We mm-hmm. ask the nonprofits to grade the, each institu- each of the city agencies that they have contracts with. And then we give the agency a grade and put out a public report card, um, which is, you know, it's interesting. There hasn't really been any Fs or As, mm-hmm. It's but it's really been in the, like, C range, which yeah. isn't great, right? No, no. Um, it's not... And and so there is a lot of work to be done on, in terms of the the government agencies and how they partner with and and work with the nonprofits. But it's interesting because city agencies like the staff they've they've told us straight up that they want to get an A. So good. like and, and asked us like what do we need to do to get an A? And so that's good. They're paying attention and it's working. Yeah. Well, when your son starts bringing home his report card and has a C on it, you're not going to be particularly happy, <laughs> Correct. are you? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you won't panic, but you, you will, there'll be no dessert. <laughs> As you know, Allison, it's estimated about 50% of health health outcomes uh, depend upon social determinants of health. Yep. So your organization has issued a report about integrating health and human services, a blueprint for partnership in action. What were some of the key recommendations and where does that stand? Yeah, so I think that was our opportunity also to talk about what I've talked about today, that the to connect the healthcare industry with the human services industry is, I think, good in terms of the idea of it. But you're talking about a well-funded, very powerful industry, the healthcare industry, mm-hmm. going to an industry that's you know hobbling along because of their finances. So the recommendations really focused on the investments that need to be made in the human services side, and also again highlighting some of the risks that the nonprofits have to be aware of when they when they're contracting and thinking about uh, the, the connecting with the healthcare sector. It's things like create um, IPAs for that for human services, um, so that they're able to collect their services kind of like the uh, individual doctors have so they can connect to the the managed care organizations and the hospitals. Um, It's things like invest in the technology needs of the nonprofits. You know, they they cannot easily transfer data between a hospital system based on what they have in place now. Um, So those are the kinds of recommendations that we, we put forward. And, you know, for me, I love the idea in theory of these things connecting, and I think we are make, doing some real evolution in our in our state around this. And I give credit to the Department of Health at the state level in pushing these things forward. But they haven't focused enough on the CBO needs, mm-hmm. and they need to make more investments there. Um, and for me, it's it's another market that the nonprofits could be connecting to. Um, however. I don't want the nonprofits to make the same mistakes they've made with government and take 80 cents on the dollar and take big risks. They need to really understand what their full costs are when they're agreeing to do health services. And it's not so easy for them to do the innovative thinking that's required when, they, when they're going to come forward with an idea to the hospital or, or to the you know, managed care organization about how their services would actually impact health in a, in a way that actually they can show data on in a yeah. short period of time. Right, right. Well, getting back to indirect costs, it's good to see that IT is moving from being considered overhead right. to being part of program and strategy and getting out of that column, which is allowing 
these organizations to invest. Right. Let me ask you about disasters. Do you do anything yeah. with your agencies in the event of a disaster to have them prepared? Yeah. So, look, Human Service Council is an association of providers, right? And we think about risks for those institutions. When a disaster happens, like Sandy, yeah. um, which is, I think, just seven years ago, mm-hmm. um, we have we have to shift as an institution because we can't be doing advocacy for cost of living adjustments or or more indirect rates in that moment. Government is not paying attention to that government is focusing on the major disaster and and trying to fix it, right? And trying to help communities recover. So we are really trying to figure out how to make sure that we connect our members to government effectively in those moments so that government can leverage the relationships and the work that is being done in communities every day. The nonprofits that are doing child care today, if their community gets hit by a disaster, they're going to be doing other types of work. And so but but it's there's no guarantee that they'll be funded for that kind yeah, of work, yeah. right? And so we're trying to figure out how can the contract shift in order to, that they might have for childcare with the you know the Department of Education, for example. Can it shift and and can some of those dollars be help support? the shift in those employees' work at that time related to a disaster. Um, we, we have a thing called Human Services Alert, which is actually designed for uh, nonprofit managers so that we can give them information, uh, and we are sourcing it from the places like the Red Cross, mm-hmm. um, the Salvation Army, government, um, et cetera, philanthropy, to give that information to the, the nonprofits so that when they're making decisions about what they should do, what risks they should take, because you're taking a risk when you're deciding to do something different in a disaster and you don't know where the money's coming from, yep. that you have as much information about what other people related to the disaster are doing in that moment and can make more educated uh, decisions about what you might do. Oh, that's great. It's so important to have those things pre-baked. Exactly. Because when a disaster comes, no one's going to be talking to anybody. I mean, Every, the, you the just chaos, have to swing into action. Exactly. And the chaos is inevitable, but you can have a little bit con- more controlled chaos when you do preparedness. Let me close with this, Allison. If you were mayor for a day, uh-huh. or maybe you prefer to be governor for a day, uh-huh. <laughs> and could implement one thing that would have the greatest positive impact on the members of the Human Services Council and the individuals and the communities they serve, what would that be? I would make sure that the that there's a, a transparency and in the cost structures that are put out in RFPs, mm-hmm. that there is a clear explanation as to why we came up with certain costs um, and why the government has priced the service at the price that it's at so that we could actually close that gap between the 80% and the full cost of services. Just talking to one another, a narrative that we could understand exactly, <laughs> would make exactly. a big difference. Well, Allison Sesso, the Executive Director of the Human Services Council, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. If there was an action that listeners could take that would help with some of the challenges that so many of these agencies are now dealing with, what action would you like to see them take? I think people should think about what uh, institutions are operating in their communities and to get involved, to think about being on the board of directors, mm-hmm. making contributions to those organizations, and to frankly talking to their city council members about the value that those institutions bring. Great. Well, thanks, Allison. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.